The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. How does Jesus Christ transform a city? I mean, how does he do it? It's an important question. I don't know if you caught in the year 2000, the summer, the uh, planet passed a significant threshold. And as of 2007, more of its occupants inhabit cities than live outside of them. And that ratio is dramatically increasing. We are an urban race. We live in cities. And it's interesting, when you look at the story of the Bible from beginning to end, it's a story that begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. So how does God transform cities in Jesus Christ? It's an important question for you and me, because if we take the scripture seriously, his strategy is right here in this room. It's terrifying, but it's also wonderful to think that you and I are the means by which God intends to transform Seattle. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then he turns right around to say to you and me, you are the light of the world. And he reminds us that as the Father has sent me, so I send you. We're agents of change, his agents of transformation. And we're beginning a series uh, this Sunday that goes for the next seven Sundays in the book of Revelation. This last book of the Bible it gives us this vision at its end, last chapter of a, of a city that descends from heaven, a new Jerusalem. This place in the midst of God's dwelling is an urban place. Well, the vision comes to a man we refer to as the Apostle of Love. The Apostle John, who outlives his colleagues, and he is in exile. Why is he in exile? Because the, the, the Roman rulers of the first century fancied themselves lords. And somewhere along the way, they picked up a slogan that they required of all good citizens. Caesar is Lord. And you would be expected to come at a certain points, particularly here at the end of the first century, probably 95, 80, 95. And you'd be expected to come to a temple in your city and take a pinch of incense and toss in the flame and say, Caesar is Lord. Well, this troubled the followers of Jesus. And many of them would not say Caesar is Lord because they had been taught that there is another Lord, that Jesus is Lord. No doubt this has gotten John in trouble. And the authorities might have taken John's life, martyred him, except that that might have just made a folk hero out of him and thought it's better to marginalize him. They send him to this penal colony on the island of Patmos, a few miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, for hard labor. And this revelation of Jesus Christ comes to John. I don't know whether he was tired and weary, alone and sleepy. I don't know whether he was gathered with fellow professing Convicts, but we do know it was the Lord's Day, like today, the first day of the week. The Apostle John is in worship. Perhaps he sits by a fire and 
hears the gentle clip-clop of an anxious horse outside the door, and perhaps he dozes off to sleep. Maybe a seminarian is going on and on. And into his dream, suddenly, miraculously, steps Jesus Christ himself. And he gives John a vision, an apocalypse. And it's an urban vision, isn't it? I mean, it starts off with this vision of Jesus, chapter 1. And then chapter 2 and 3, these seven messages to seven churches. So identifiable are these churches with the cities in which they occupy that Jesus refers to the church by the city. These places aren't known by the buildings in which they worship. They're not known by the homeowners or the house churches or by the pastors who lead them. To Jesus, they're known by the cities. Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and closest, preeminent among them all, Ephesus. We get scared when we come to the book of Revelation. Some scary things in there. And yet, let me help you out a little bit with that. Think of it as a contest between these two lords, Caesar and Jesus. A contest that plays itself out in human history. Plays itself out on the streets of cities. This contest is personified, it's symbolized by two cities. One on the, uh, on the one hand, Babylon, that city of enmity towards God and God's people. Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem, you remember. And on the other hand, the city of Jerusalem, the city that receives the, the love, the affection, the promises of God. That place where the people of God live at peace. These two cities. Rome, on the one hand, would, in its extreme, in the... In the, uh, the pride of human arrogance, the supremacy and authority that, that at the time of the first century is held by or claimed by Rome takes the place of Babylon and is referred to as Babylon. On the other hand, the kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus is symbolized by Jerusalem. Well, how will Jesus Christ transform these cities? When we come to Revelation, we get an answer. Another thing I want to help you out with a Revelation, just to, by way of introduction, the genre. There, there are three genre in the book of Revelation. It's important to notice them. They bleed together a little bit, and they have different rules of interpretation. The first genre we find in Revelation is prophecy, much like the Old Testament prophets. You know, the Old Testament prophets were people who took the covenant that God made with Israel on Sinai and applied it to contemporary situations. So a, a prophecy is meant... For today. It's the covenant of God lived out today in contemporary circumstances. And Revelation is a prophecy. But a prophecy usually was given in person in the first century early church. Someone like myself at this moment would stand up before the gathered people of God and would say, here's how the covenant relates to us. And that'd be a prophetic word. But of course, John, being in exile, he's not able to be present with these churches. So he draws on a second form, and that's a letter, an epistle. And we see the marks of that and the greeting at the beginning and the end, the, the, the farewell and the grace and peace to you. It's a letter. See, because John can't be with us in worship this morning. 
And this letter was intended to be circulated among these seven cities. So these words are not just for each individual city, but remember, numbers are important in Revelation. Seven is the number of wholeness and fullness. So this letter is meant for all churches. Each of these prophetic words. And so it's meant for us as well. And then the third genre we find in this bit of literature, this book, scroll, is apocalypse. Now, that's a frightening word for us, apocalypse. What do you think of when you hear that word? You think of the end of something. You think of disaster, of catastrophe, apocalypse now. But, but the word apocalypse in Greek or Revelation simply means unveiling. It's to pull the veneer off and to show what really is. You and I think we know what our lives are about. But John is given an unveiling. In apocalyptic literature, oftentimes trades in the symbols, signs, poetry. It's imaginative literature. But it's designed to show what really is beneath what appears to be. Well, we begin today with Ephesus, a quarter of a million people, the capital of Asia Minor, closest to John as he receives this vision and primary priority because the vision has to do with love. And in a moment now, I'm going to ask you to stand and read this scripture with you. Pull out your Bible or the Pew Bible in front, if you would, because I thought for the next seven weeks, we would honor this scripture, this prophecy by reading aloud together. Do you know there's a promise at the beginning of this revelation, this letter? And the promise is a blessing upon those who read it and those who hear it. So I thought, why should I get all the blessing? So I'm going to invite you now to stand and open up to Revelation chapter 2. Please stand. On page 995 in the Pew Bible. After you're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you'll say thanks be to God. And then I'm going to read that blessing for you. Listen carefully. You're reading God's word. Revelations 2, 1 through 7. Together. And the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in them, for the time is near. Please be seated.
This week, early in the morning, I found myself on my usual jog uh, running in the dark. And that's the nice thing about Seattle in the winter. You get dark, you can think it's early in the morning, even at 7 o'clock. I was running through the university district and thinking to myself, they say this is the most unchurched city in America, Seattle. But I was startled when a light caught my eye. It was a window of an apartment building. And I could easily see through the window as I ran by that at a desk right in front of the window, there was a young man who sat and his head was bowed. And his hands were folded across his brow. And I could swear that he was praying. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe he would just fallen asleep in the midst of preparation for some exam that he was taking. Who knows what he was praying if he was. Perhaps he was praying to get through the exam. But I thought to myself, what if he's praying a prayer like this? What if he's saying, God... I've known you were there. I've believed in you as long as I've known anything. And and God, I've done all that I can do to live the way that you want. I've done my best to live a good life. But if I'm to be honest with you, I don't feel close to you. You feel far away. Well, I thought... If he prays in just that way, and if he were in Ephesus, then I think Jesus Christ might step into that prayer as he steps into the dream of John with two things. First of all, a tree, and second of all, an invitation to eat of its fruit. A tree and an invitation to eat. Let's take the tree first. We find the tree at the end of this pet text, don't we, in verse 7. Jesus says, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. That tree of life, what is that? Of course, if we've read the Bible, the story, we know that the very beginning of the story, when God creates, he, He endeavors to make everything good. It's good, it's good, it's good. He's expressing His love even as He makes And then he creates this garden in which he puts a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. And in that garden, even in the center of the garden, he places what? A tree. A tree of life. And that garden represents the presence of God. So that's the first thing we see in this tree. It's it's a reminder that you and I live before the presence of God. This Jesus who speaks to Ephesus, the one who walks among the lampstands. He holds the stars in his hands. He says, I know, I know, I know your life. You live it in my presence. Well, there's a tree of life at the beginning of the story, Garden of Eden. And there's a tree of life at the end of the story in this heavenly city, this new Jerusalem that comes down. There's a tree of life. We see it right there at the end. And faintly, there's a little outline of that tree that traces the journey of Israel and God's people throughout history. The next place we'll see it after Genesis is in Exodus, when Moses is given instructions by God to build a a tabernacle, which is a tent. It's kind of a a mobile temple. You may remember that the 
the, the tabernacle has these two parts to it. It's got the holy of holy, which is where God is absolutely present in his glory. And then there's a, an entryway, a second part to it called the holy place. And in there, we find a replica of the tree of life. It's a tree, Exodus, I think it's 25. Gives description of the artisans who are to make this tree like an almond tree. It's to have a trunk. It's a lampstand with a trunk made of gold. And it's to have these three branches on either side, like a tree. And at the end of the branches, there are blossoms. This marks the presence of God in the midst of his people. And then Zechariah 4, again, a renewal of this vision that we live our life in the presence of a tree of life, the presence of God. Zechariah 4, you can look at it later. It gives John the imagery that appears to him again in this vision. It's a vision of a lampstand, seven lampstands and oil. And that victory comes not by might, but by the Spirit of God who is present with us. Well, there's a second thing that this tree represents, because you remember there's a second tree in the Garden of Eden. And it's a very dangerous tree, as history proves. Why would you, if you were God and loved your creation, put such a dangerous tree in the middle of the garden as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because that is the tree where you and I recognize and respond to love. Think about it. There's no moral necessity about that tree. God says the one rule in this garden is just don't eat of that one tree. It's not a rule like don't kill anybody or don't lie. It's an arbitrary rule. There's nothing necessary about it. There's nothing objective about it, but it's a very subjective tree. It's one in which every day in the middle of the garden, Adam and Eve would be forced to walk by and make a choice. Do I believe that God loves me and wants my best? And and do I love him in response? If they loved him, they would walk by that tree. And one day, the implication of the second tree is that they would eat. The tree of life is a sacrament. You will eat Life from its branches. Well, we know the story. We know that we're lousy lovers as human beings. Adam and Eve were. And they choose to eat of that tree. They choose to defy the one who loves their souls. And the disruption of life occurs. It disrupts life on this whole planet throughout time and space and history. And so in the fullness of time, God would send a second Adam. Jesus Christ. One who believed he was loved by the Father. And one who would love in response. And who would give life. Who would make the tree of life possible for you and me. By shedding his blood on the tree of Calvary. So this is the first thing I think our friend in the U District who prays. Might be asked to see a vision of a tree. The presence of God that brings fruit in love, that blossoms in love. One of my favorite uh, Candid Camera episodes, and I love that show, uh, it was an episode in which they took a car and they extracted the engine of the car, pulled the whole thing out so the trunk was just empty. And they found a gas station that was at the foot of a really long, very gradual hill. 
like a mile long or something like that. And they put an actress in the car and she drove the car down the hill around the corner, you know, and pulled it into the gas station. And uh, the service attendant came out and filled up the gas and she said, hey, uh, I think I'm a little low on washer fluid. Would you mind filling it up? So she pops the trunk and he lifts it up. And you see his, his face, you know, thinking, what is this? this I, I think this woman just drove into the station, but there's no engine here. <laughs> How's he going to explain it to her? She just doesn't get it. <laughs> Friends, you and I, somewhere along the road of life, though we loved Jesus with a white, hot fervor when we first knew, discovered, and felt his love for us, our engine dropped out. Jesus says, you know, I know your good works. I know your orthodox faith. I know your endurance that you have struggled and survived and persisted. But I have this one thing against you. You've forgotten your first love. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. It's not that anybody ever said, well, I don't want to love anymore. But bit by bit, Bolt by bolt, washer by washer, belt by belt, the engine has dropped out of our life. What can we do? What can we do? How can we rediscover the presence of this tree of life in our lives? Well, there's an invitation to eat of that tree, and it has three parts to it. We find it in verse 5. Jesus says this, remember, repent, and do. Remember, repent, and do. What are we to remember? Remember the love with which you have been loved. Return to that moment of discovery when you had a sense that you of all people, you are loved by God with the very Son, Jesus Christ Himself. Chapter 1 reminds us that Jesus is the one who loves us and freed us from our sin by His blood. We love because He first loved us. At this table, John would remember he had heard the words of Jesus, No greater love has a man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And I have called you my friend. Takes imagination to remember, doesn't it? Uh, who's good at imagination? Artists, apocalyptic writers, and lovers. For our radio audience, I want to describe this, uh, this flower vase that's on the side. If you read in the bulletin, you should. You'll see that this is an expression of love for somebody who has loved for 67 years. What a beautiful, foolish thing this is. I remember when Ann and I were married uh, first, we were in a little apartment and we would see a couple walk by, one in front of the other. And they did almost every day, about 30 feet apart. And it terrified us. We thought, well, one day we want to take walks like that. <laughs> no, this is what we want after 67 years of life. Such foolish extravagance. Love imaginatively, recalling anniversary after anniversary, the story of our coming together and what binds us together. And, and John says, remember, remember that love, that love that God has for you. 
That's the first step to eating this fruit. The second step is to repent. Repent. It means to get rid of the false trees. Coming from Los Angeles, I've learned to suspect trees. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's not happened in Seattle, but, you know, in L.A., whenever you see a tree, you know what it is. It's a cell phone tower. And, and you look at a tree and you think, wow, that's a cool, beautiful tree. And you look closely and you realize it's fake. Well, they had a fake tree in Ephesus as well. Ephesus was world-renowned for the temple of Artemis. Artemis is the goddess of life for them, a fertility goddess. And she uh, was honored in one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world, this temple of Artemis with 100 columns, 55 feet tall of marble, more square footage than two American football fields. And the mythology of Artemis was that she was born just outside of Ephesus in a tree grove. And every year, for a whole month, all labor would stop. Because our welfare depends on Artemis, doesn't it? And they would go down to that grove and celebrate her goodness to the people. But be very careful. It's an economy of if-then. It's an economy that says, if you do this, then you will have life. If you are smart enough, if you are well-educated enough, if you have enough in your bank account, if you have the right kind of job, then you'll have life. That's the narrative of the tree of Artemis. And Jesus says, repent. Let those stories go. Your tree is a different kind of a tree. It's a tree of grace. It's a tree that begins with God's love for you. These narratives enter the church. We love Jesus at first with a fervor, but to come to serve on a committee, and there's nothing like the ministry to lose Jesus Christ faster than any other place. Committee meeting after committee meeting, serving, working so hard, studying and making sure that our beliefs are all just as the Bible would have them to be, and forgetting. And so repent. Remember, repent, and finally do. Do the works that you did at first. Put love into action. And I tell you, that first love is a silly kind of love. Think about when you first experienced love in your heart. I don't know if I was kindergarten or just a few weeks ago for you. you know. What you wanted to do that made no sense at all. I've got a friend who works in New York City. He's a Wall Street banker. He's a, one of the suited, stiff types. But when he fell in love... He went absolutely red in the face with silliness. And he proposed to his uh, girlfriend at Central Station. You had, you know, this normal loudspeaker voice. It's very staid and calls the trains, you know, saying, Helen, Peter loves you. Will you marry him? Such foolishness. <laughs> and we, too, when we connect with our first love, want to run out and do foolish things. To take two $100 bills, put them in a folded envelope and put them in someone's mailbox and just drive away. As a UCLA student, to take all of our clothes except the ones that we're wearing and just give them away to people on the street. Makes no sense. Except as an act of first love. 
For those of you who weren't able to make it to the memorial service we had at Thursday, I want to recall for you one little anecdote about Sergeant Larson. Do you know that your pastor emeritus served in Europe as a sergeant in World War II? And after the war, he received a letter from a man apparently that he had forgotten. And it said, you know, dear Sergeant Larson, you probably don't remember me, but we will never forget you. Because that was the coldest winter on record. And you came in the morning to wake us up. You put your arms around us and hugged us to warmth. You walked with us around our foxholes until the blood was flowing. Thank you for that love. Friends, love is contagious. That's what we learn from Bruce Larson. That's what we learn from Jesus Christ who sends us out to transform our city as people with love. We have a tree and an invitation to eat of its fruit. A tree to remember that God is present with us and an invitation to eat his love for us and to share that fruit with this city person by person. From the gang yards to the boardrooms, this is what it's going to take to transform Jesus Christ in the name of the Savior. So my charge to you, friends, even today, do not let your head hit the pillow without enacting love today. Somehow, find someone to love in a small or a large way. Are you ready for that assignment? Let me see you nod. Going to love somebody today. Okay, let's pray for that. Jesus, we have made this promise to you that we will love. We know that as we do, we will experience your love for us. You love this city more than we can imagine, and as we love even one of its inhabitants, our heart resonates with yours. Our love towards you will grow as we love. We love because you first loved us. Liberate our imaginations with the joy and the wonder of that mystery. May it be the one thing that matters when we think of who we are. Your love for us in Jesus. Let us eat from the tree of life. In his name, amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.